Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. And um, my name is Chris Lane. I'm the senior pastor. It's good to be here this morning. I, uh, I just loved coming into church this morning. I've been on the road a lot this week, visiting various churches and things, and I'm pretty tired. And then just to come in here and, and just be welcomed. I mean, even in the car park, I was welcomed. It was lovely. And people just greeting me. And then to come in and Everything's just kind of humming, and lovely to see Mark again. Didn't Mark do a great job? Give him a little round of applause there. And uh, in case you're interested, uh, Mark has just got a new album out, and uh, Surrender. And uh, if you'd like to buy them from him, I, I think they are a little cheaper than buying them from our bookstore, but don't say I said that. Okay, otherwise I'd be in terrible trouble. But uh, do get the... Uh, CD from Mark uh, Surrender. Well, while I've been away, a lot of fun things have been happening. I feel like I miss things, and I, I, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed and found interesting these live political debates. Anybody else watched that or followed that a bit? Come on, guys. Come on. Put your hand right up. I want to see this. Come on, watch this. It's a flipping economy on Wednesday, you know. Do you know, this series we're about to start, we're calling Kings. And uh, I thought what we would do in this series is uh, spend a couple of weeks, I know there's a couple of weeks before uh, we actually go to vote, but um, I thought we would look at the whole business of leadership at the highest of levels. And, and, and you know, we're all looking for, uh, you know, who we, who we would vote for in this coming election. And of course, there's the macro thing, there's the, the TV presentations, and that's, I think, almost single-handedly changed the face of how we do politics, getting the three leaders of the major parties up there and answering questions and interacting. I find it fascinating. And then all the comment, of course, that follows. There's the macro thing and the, the parties and the policies that they represent. But then, of course, there's also the local thing, because, you know, you and I aren't voting for, for David or... or or uh, Gordon, or Nick, it, it's our own local representatives, and not everybody lives in St. Albans here, and you've got your own, as Fliss and I do, we've got our own set of choices to be made. There's the, the sort of micro, the local level. And, and it's simply not good enough, in my opinion, to just vote along party lines. I think that there are a whole list of questions that we should be asking, even if we can't have the answer, if we don't find the answers too easily. I, I believe there are a number of questions that we should be asking and, and looking for in our nation's leaders and in our local leaders. And so this series on Kings is really about leadership and what to look for in a leader. So uh, having said that, can I just say that Fliss and myself, we are going on holiday tomorrow for a, two or three weeks, looking forward to that. And we're still trying to arrange our proxy and postal votes and all that kind of thing. It's pretty a little difficult. So I'm not sure that we're going to be able to actually get to vote on, on polling day. So can I just put out this plea to everyone? Will you please vote for someone nice? I don't want to come back and find there's somebody horrible, all right? So please, vote for someone nice, all right? Okay, great. I'm glad we got that one sorted out. That's the pastor's direction on who to vote for in the forthcoming general election. Vote for someone nice, okay? Good. I'm glad we sorted that one out. Okay, today then we're going to look at uh, Saul. We're not looking at the book of kings. We're going to look at a number of kings in Israel's history. And we're going to be looking at Saul. 
the first, although actually the second king of Israel. Some of you are thinking, you know your Bible a bit, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, what do you mean the second? He was the first king, wasn't he, Saul? Well, yeah, that's a very good point. But actually, as we begin to understand the whole business of finding a king and anointing a king over Israel, we, be, we, we begin to see that actually there was a king that came before Saul. And, and I'm actually going to look at a little passage of scripture here. We're going to read a few chunks of scripture and then I'll wind it up by making a few comments. Uh, so that's not a bad place to start. Let's, let's begin in 1 uh, Samuel chapter 10. Now Samuel was a great prophetic figure. He was... Uh, a, a prophet, a seer, someone who saw into the future, someone who had the kind of X factor when it came to uh, you know, dealing with people and operating in the spirit and seeing things and discerning things. And he was looked to by Israel as a sort of unofficial leader. He, would, he wouldn't have ever claimed to have been the leader of Israel, but he was God's spokesman to Israel and someone whom, to whom the people of Israel looked. And uh, the people came to him and said, we want a king. We want a king. And this really grieved Samuel. And we'll see why in just a minute when we read through this passage. It really hurt him. He felt a personal slight. Not that he was the king, but he felt... He felt grieved by this. He felt rejected by this. Why? Because Samuel knew that the first and only king of Israel was actually, was actually God himself. And what made Israel distinctive was the fact that they didn't have a king like other people or other nations. They actually had... God is their king, and he provided for them, and he blessed them, and it was very, very real, very tangible. And that's what comes out of this little passage. We'll read it now, and I'll try and read it. I'm struggling a little bit this morning with my voice for some reason, but I'll do my best. And we'll get the story of, of the anointing of Saul as the king of Israel. So, let me just pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you for your presence in this place. And as I dare to try and share your word, please speak to us and through us and to me and through me. And please, dear God, open our eyes and our ears to hear and discern what it is you would have us know this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Samuel, beginning at verse 17, 1 Samuel 10. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, no, set a king over us. So now present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and clans. And when Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matris clan, was chosen. 
Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and they brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king, long live the king. So even though the Lord was aggrieved and hurt and saw it as a personal slight upon his kingship, in his tenderness and his kindness and in his patience with Israel, he still chose them a king. And when this man is found, it turns out he's a good-looking young fella, young whippersnapper. Head and shoulders above the rest and a fine-looking fellow of a man. But actually, you know, one of the curious things is that that was not why God chose him. God will have chosen him at that time, will have called him because of the potential of the man. This is one of the things, I don't know about you, but the older I get, one of the things that almost haunts me is the question... And it's a kingdom question. And it's the question, am I living to the full potential God sees in me? Am I living to the full potential that God sees in me? Now, I I believe, I trust, and I have faith that I'm saved, you know. If, God forbid, I was knocked over by a 57 bus as I left the place, I would go to be with Jesus. But we're saved for a purpose, God has something in mind for us. It says in Ephesians, there are good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. And I don't know about you, but I want to walk in and live in and do those things that God has in mind for me. So my question, the one that almost haunts me is this. Am I living to God's full potential? Frankly, some days I don't think I am. Others are better And I do better. But I'm working on it. I'm a work in progress. So God saw something in Saul. He saw a potential. And he called him to be that first king. And, uh, but there is a warning here. Particularly actually interesting as we're looking at our TVs on Wednesday nights or Thursday nights, whatever it is, and these TV debates. And we're judging people on the way they look, the cut of their suit, the steadiness of their voice, the way they hold the, the camera with their eye, the way they act in debate. There is something that we need to recognize and realize that God, once, God is looking for character and gifting. Character and gifting. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 says this. That God looks at the heart. God does not look at the way at people in the way that you and I look. God looks at the heart. And so in Saul there was a man of promise. There was a man of potential. We are each and every one of us men and women of promise and potential. And that is just the same for our leaders. 
That's why I love when we do the Stand Up for Poverty pledge every year in the autumn. How, as part of the prayer, we, we speak out, we pray, we call upon the world's leaders to live up to their high calling. Be great. Be brave. Be courageous. We believe you can live like this. Be great. Be courageous. It's not a bad thought, is it, for today? Not a bad prayer for our leaders at this time. So God looks at character and gifting. He's, he's looking at the potential. Now actually, as far as Samuel was concerned, uh, sorry, as Saul was concerned, he started well. He really did. He was a reluctant hero. We read just a moment or two ago how when they were looking for him to anoint him as king, he was hiding amongst the, the baggage. You could say that that was a character deficiency. Well, maybe it was, or maybe it was just modesty. Maybe, maybe he was not the thrusting young buck who wanted to shove his way through the crowd and say, I'll be king, I'll be king. Yeah, choose me, 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 I'm your man. Maybe there was a, maybe there was a reticence there. Maybe, there he, maybe he feared God and knew the responsibilities that that would hold. Whatever. Saul is anointed as king and he begins well. He really does. There's an incredible military success against the Ammonites who were the, the baddies at that moment. Everybody, like pantomime, go boo. One, two, three, boo. Oh, heck. <laughs> Come on, it's pantomime. Let's play the pantomime, okay? When I say the Ammonites, everybody boo and hiss. The Ammonites! Very good, well done, that's much better. (laughs) Moving on. Very serious moment. But after he started well and won a great victory, things began to fall apart. And it turned out that some of the darker sides of Saul, the, the weakness in his character, became the default position. Now, we all have weaknesses and tendernesses and and wounds in our character. That's what it is to be a human being. It's as well, as they say, to know yourself and to guard yourself and keep yourself and protect yourself. Do not put yourself in the way of harm. Walk in such a way as to avoid those areas of weakness. We all have them. But unfortunately, Saul began to default to those areas of weakness. And the first one was that he, be, he was impatient. He was an impatient man. And there's a, an occasion later on at Gilgal where, where Samuel says, Okay, gather the troops. We're going to march out against the Amalekites. And uh, I'll be there. We'll sacrifice. And then off you go. Well, Samuel was delayed for whatever reason. I suspect the Lord was actually testing Saul and his resolve. Five days went by, still no Samuel. Six days, so no Samuel. Seven days, no Samuel. Eight days, no Samuel. And now the troops are getting restless. And so Saul does something very foolish and impetuous. He demonstrated an impatience that is not seemly when you are the commander of the king's army. He took the place of priest and made the sacrifices himself. As he's doing it, of course, guess what happens? Who walks through the door? But none other than Samuel. 
And Samuel gave him short shrift for it. And he started making excuses. He started, you know, apportioning blame. And it wasn't me, it was you. If you'd come when you said you would, then, you know, da di da di da di da Another character weakness. Saul was a spear chucker. He would, he would blame others. He would try and pin others against the wall when he was actually under pressure. Not a good characteristic. Okay, if you can manage it, if you can work it, if you can work around it. But to default to it is dangerous. So he was impatient and impulsive. But the crunch came, the crunch, in the next episode, 1 Samuel 15. Again, I'm going to read a chunk of scripture. The scripture speaks for itself. Then I'll make one or two little observations and then we'll begin to sum up. Let's look at it. 1 Samuel chapter 15. And um, I can't remember whether I asked John to put the words up on the screen, so I'll read you the story anyway. Beginning at verse 10. And uh, what has happened here is, is that, the, that Samuel has said to Saul, Okay, the Lord is with you. You're going to attack the Amalekites now. Very good. I didn't even prep you on that one because the last ones were the Ammonites. These are the Amalekites. I love your enthusiasm. It sends chills up and down my spine. This is a very, uh, these are very early days in Israel's history and they're still settling into the nation, into the land that God has given them. And so every upstart you know, race and, 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 and uh, leader is trying to kind of dislodge them. So they're having to fight a battle a day, it seems. Now it's the Amalekites. The Philistines are always featuring in this story. But today's the Amalekites. And Samuel says, okay, listen... We've got to wipe the Amalekites out. If we don't wipe them out, you will never get rid of them. They will dog you for the rest of, of, of your history. You've got to go against Agag, their king. You've got to, you know, God will, will give you victory. You've got to just wipe them off the face of the earth because you will all, Satan will use them to bite your heel. Don't, don't take any plunder. Just, just get rid, the whole lot. So Saul says, right, okay, got it. Yep, fine, okay. Charges off into the horizon. They get the victory, but then they start seeing the spoils. Wow, that is a wonderful camel. That is a GT version with a double claw and a double hump. Man, and just look at its teeth. Immaculate, low mileage. And they all started playing that game. So they didn't do what they were told. They actually started gathering for themselves sheep and goats and cattle and camels and goodness knows what. And then the biggest prize, and this was common in those days, was to take the opposing king, who they were supposed to have done away with immediately, and sort of bring them back bound in chains as a, as a trophy. So poor old Agag is tormented and tortured and humiliated and all the rest of it. This is the background. So Saul and the soldiers are partying. God has given them the victory, but they're really beginning to get out of hand now. 
and doing what soldiers have done, sadly, the dark side of soldiering for generations. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. I am grieved that I have made Saul king. Because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. Now wait a minute. Who was it who gave him victory? God himself. And Saul's raising up monuments to his victory, his great victory. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. (laughs) Good to see you, Samuel. Take your weight off your feet. Come on, quick, get him a drink. He's been traveling. Come on. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Oh, my goodness. But Samuel said... What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? Sorry, was that a cattle I heard lowing? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. (laughs) They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. (laughs) But we, we, we totally destroyed the rest. Stop! Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war of them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the, sight, in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to the Lord in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Of divination. And arrogance. Like the evil of idolatry. But you have rejected the word of the Lord. And so he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. That was the crunch. Disobedience, we can unpack it, but you know the crunch there, the the default weakness 
which really undid Saul is there in verse 24. I was afraid of the people and so gave in to them. Leadership at every level calls for courage. Courage. Not just courage in battle when you know, the blood is up and you've got some fine fellas and all fully kitted out in armor and rest, running down a hill, falling upon the enemy. In one sense, that's easy. Bloodlust. Courage is often what you have to exercise when there is pushback, when there is resistance, when, what, when the stand that you are taking is not popular. That's when a man or a woman of character has to dig deep and stand firm. Courage when you are afraid, when your reputation is on the line. But you know in your knower that what you see and what you think and what you feel and what you have heard from God is the way it's got to be or here I die. That's when you dig deep. That's when you call on courage. And it's often cold and grey and wet and difficult. It usually is needed on Tuesday mornings. Not high feasts and holidays. It's on the, in the cold grey light of day. When you exercise courage. I was afraid of the people. So I gave in to them. Now over the next four or five weeks, I know it will go past the election, but this is a good opportunity to think about spiritual leadership and leadership per se. The preaching team are going to be unpacking various aspects of, of courage. Things that you may not hear behind those wonderful you know, uh, lecterns and things in the studios on Wednesday and Thursday nights, but things that we, as the people of God, need to be aware of and to understand. And I want to say to you, this is a culture that is actually hostile towards leadership. I've said it before, and I still hold to it, that we will set people up on a pedestal only to turn them into what they call or used to call an Aunt Sally. We set them up in order to chuck things at them. I don't know how many of you remember this. We will all remember the incredible outpouring of grief for Lady Diana when she died. That was an extraordinary and I believe a spiritual moment. It was a defining moment. It's one of those moments that many will remember until the day they die. Where they were and what they were doing. In America they talk about where were you when JFK died. I remember the very place at the time when I heard that Lady Diana died. What we tend to forget was for nine months prior to that, she was being slated in the press. Slated. Now you don't hear a bad word about her. Or if you hear a slight downside word, it's, it's, it's an expression of compassion and, 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 and acceptance that she was an ordinary woman called to an extraordinary position. It's generous and kind and supportive. But at the time... The press was slaughtering her, and then she drops, and then, she's, then she dies. And <gasps> princess, to, the people's princess. We forget that. So, leadership is not a popular calling these days, and yet many of you here are exercising leadership. 
Me just saying that gives some of you a nervous tick. Because you don't want to be known as a leader because of the cost there. But 1 Timothy 3 1 says this If anyone sets his heart on being a leader, he desires, desires a noble task. That is God's view of those who aspire, men and women, to leadership. You are aspiring to a noble task. You have God's support, God's encouragement, and God is rooting for you. God is rooting for you. I I want to say to you, some of you um, are increasingly considering involvement in local politics. Whatever the, the party that you feel an affiliation or a sympathy or an empathy for, I want to say God bless you. Because we need men and women of character and courage. Frankly, it doesn't matter what they look like. Because God looks at the heart. We've got to engage in politics again. Do you know, uh, this week I was, uh, as I said, I was on the road and... I met with a number of leaders, one of them a national leader, and we were having dinner together. And uh, we, we, somebody asked about this white band on my wrist, which of course is the, the one campaign, Make Poverty History thing. Uh, and I was staggered. I didn't know what it was. And the conversation ran on a little bit. I explained what that was. And I said, isn't it great news about the vulture funds? And every single, not a single person knew what I was talking about. Roger, just run up here and tell us... 30 seconds, 20 seconds. No, <laughs> tell us about the latest development on the vulture funds. Um, vulture funds sue the poorest countries and keep money from them. We've been doing loads. Well done, everyone. Amazing news after a complete roller coaster where we, the bill was, was down and was cancelled and then it's back up again. In the dying days of the parliament, the bill went through. Praise God. So it's now law. Yes. Fantastic. Praise God. Give Praise God the God. glory. Thank you. God bless you, all of you guys. And it's become bigger than us. Just community is something that we uh, are part of and is Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire based. And lots of men and women of goodwill, many of faith, some with no faith, have joined together to, on behalf of the poor. We need to be engaged with these things. You know... When I fell foul of a certain local politician and was, was, was reported in the local press, you know, I was accused of being naive. People don't want Christians meddling in the real world. Well, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. But I want to say this to you. If you aspire to be a leader, you desire a noble task. The world would say, keep your faith to yourself. I would say, let your faith inform yourself. Whether you're called to be a a Christian politician, whether you are called to be a Christian in industry, whether you are called to be a Christian in education, I say, you desire a noble task as you seek leadership in that. Do not be deterred. Do not be put off. Do not be told to keep your place and your faith to yourself. 
Some of the most fundamental liberties that we enjoy in this country, this nation, were won by Christians, men and women of courage, who would not step down. Five quick things. These aren't prescriptive. Five quick things that you might ask of those who present themselves on your doorstep, beseeching you to vote for them. Five quick things. First of all, do they have a good public? Uh, do they have a good track record of public service? Do you know this person? Have they been around? Have they featured in the local papers, campaigning for some cause or other? One of the candidates where I live wrote to my friend, who is the chairman of the the local residents' association, a residents' association that's responsible for over two thousand households. And about six weeks ago, this candidate wrote to him, and he said, "What are the local issues? Uh, I'm the I'm the new da di da di da candidate, and uh, just wanted to know what people are really uh, kind of uh, you know energized about." My friend came straight back at him, copied me on the email. He said, "Dear so and so, I am shocked and surprised that you have to ask me what the issues are." And you are hoping to represent us in Westminster. He was quite right. On the face of it, oh, he's just trying to, you know, listen to the people. But he should know. He should have been out there tramping the streets for weeks in the wind, the rain, and all the rest of it. He should have been talking. I don't know this guy at all. Never heard of him. But he is one of our major party candidates in my area. Do they have a good track record of public service? Do they have a reputation for honesty and integrity? Say no more. Who have they gathered around them? It's very interesting. Who have they been seen with? These kind of things are not easy to to kind of uh, answer. But if you ferret around on the internet, if you keep your ear to the ground, you can find out what their associations, where their special interests are. You can find out about the candidates. Fourthly, are they willing to make a stand? Do they, particularly if they've been on the scene for a while, do they have a reputation for standing on behalf of the people in the face of some unpopular, you know, national government decision or something? Are they rooting for the, you know, the local hospital, the A and E thing, the maternity, whatever the local issues are? And we come from a wide area over Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire here. But does the person who is looking for your vote have a reputation for, for taking a courageous stand on issues? Or do they just go with the flow, jump on the latest bandwagon? And fin- finally, are they good finishers? You see, Saul was a man who was full of promise. God wouldn't have called him if there wasn't promise in that man. And he got off to a flying start. Absolutely Incredible. A victory. They routed the Ammonites. Don't bother to hiss. They routed them. The trouble with Saul was it went to his head and he wasn't a good finisher. We need finishers. Wilberforce was nothing if he wasn't a finisher. He spent his lifetime, 40 plus years. We can watch that movie in an hour and 43 minutes. It doesn't do a lifetime of service justice. Are they finishers? 
all too many people in public, secular, spiritual life are good finishers. In fact, Christian leaders are often the worst amongst those. Oh, I've been on retreat. I've heard a great vision from God. We're going to take the nation for Jesus. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We all jump up. We all come to the front. We get prayed for. We get sent out. And then five minutes later, the leader goes to another conference. And it's all about something else. And it leaves people thinking, well, I thought we were... What was that? I thought we were... Oh. Are they good finishers? Do they have a track record of finishing anything? I put it to you, if they don't have a track record, and if they aren't good finishers, they're not ready yet for public service. So there we have it. A few thoughts. My pontifications there. A few things to think about. You, as you apply them to your own local candidates, will be able to get answers to some of those questions And others you won't. You'll find it difficult. But these are good questions because these are addressing the character question. Not does this person look good on the television. Not does this person, you know, has he got a quick answer when in a corner. Not, you know, has he been to the right tailor. It's not about that. And yet we seem to make so much of that. Are the men and women who are seeking election men and women of character and integrity? Because God looks at the heart. The rest can come along later. Let's just just stand and pray.